The Y Curve with Phil Dobby and Roger Hearing. Ministers, politicians, we love to hate them. Liars, cheats, power mad, money grabbing, out of touch. When they do things that, frankly, many of us would just tut about when it comes to friends and family, there's outrage, a social media pile on to sack them. Sounds like hypocrisy to me. On the other hand, they are our elected representatives and to have the privilege of governing us, they must surely be held to a very high standard of behaviour. Or is all that wrong? With the anger about Suella Braverman speeding, Dominic Grab's bullying and Boris Johnson's serial dishonesty, is it time to look again at the ministerial code of conduct and whether we have unrealistic expectations of our leaders? Do we demand saints when we should be content with good managers? That's what we're looking at today on the Y Curve, brought to you by Wigmore Associates. The Y Curve. So, obviously, we are talking about this because of Boris Johnson. Well, not just Boris Johnson. I mean, I mean you've, got, you've got Suella Bravman, you've got Dominic Rob, and a lot of others mm. as well. The question is, are they behaving any worse than previous Tory MPs or even Labour MPs? I mean, if you look through oh, yeah. history, there's a long list, obviously. Well, there's always a long list. Of, you know, there's been a long list of sex scandals over the years. But I think in terms of actual conduct, as in dishonesty, well, I don't know, you go back to Lloyd George handing out peerages uh, for money and that yeah. kind of stuff. Yeah. I mean, there's a lot in it. But are we guilty of basically saying to these people, you're not only are you not going to be paid very much and be roundly insulted the whole time, mm. but you've also got to be basically saint material throughout your entire career? I mean, it's not a, a great a pitch to someone who wants to be a politician. But then again, I don't know. I mean, because if you think, well, OK, is there, if, if you were the uh, prime minister, mm. is there anything you've done? That would make you think, oh, my God, I hope that doesn't come out in the You think in I'm going to talk about that here? Yeah, no. go on. There's a perfect opportunity for you. <laughs> you really? but, I mean, but I think most people would say, well, no, there's nothing, is there? So, well, uh, no, but, but look, you know, I mean, which of us has not at some point in their lives, I suppose, speeded, perhaps, mm. um, maybe not informed the tax man about something? They, I mean, you know. Boris Johnson said before he was the prime minister or before he was an MP, I think, when he was the mayor of London, he was yeah. asked what the worst thing he ever did. And he was in the mirror. Yes. And uh, he said, well, the worst thing he's ever done is he rode a bike on the pavement which is a, it's a bit like Theresa May well, running through a field of corn, corn. yes <laughs> no, yeah. you see actually I can believe that Theresa May has done nothing wrong yes yes and, and quite a dull politician and, I think, exactly well. I mean, a good politician in some ways though some people think not for other reasons but yeah I, I think I think it's one of these things we have to decide what it is you actually want these mm. people to do and do we want dull politics I mean that I mean there's the point you yeah. know I mean if they are well, they whiter than white dividend, of course once Johnson went and once Liz Truss had gone mm. there was a feeling normal service in Britain resumed and that British stocks went up as a result yeah but there again you know uh, Rishi has also been hit with an infringement notice during covid oh, of yeah. course you yeah, know yeah, yeah. and we know that he's been you know there's all sorts of allegations obviously well, we can't talk about them here where he's built at his house and that and, kind and of yeah stuff. and uh, money going into you know industries that his wife is uh, heavily invested in you know yeah. so it's i mean it's and then it becomes a question of how much of it is actually allegations and and the effort involved in taking those allegations to prove there's anything behind them and a lot of it's unprovable but course, that, that's well. the other problem which is we all sit here going oh they're all in it for the money or the power or something we have a generally very very low 
mm. I think, assessment of our political class. So we kind of believe it whether or not it's proven. Well, do you know who's got really high standards? Let who's me that? tell you. It's Wigmore Associates. They, you know, they, I mean, they are to be trusted with your money. Uh, they are wealth management uh, service providers for individuals and trusts. They cover everything from pensions, tax planning and inheritance tax advice. Uh, and, you know, we've got a very complex regulatory environment these days and it's you can't keep across it all. But they do. Uh, and that's why you need to put your money in the hands of experts. Wigmore Associates, a boutique asset management firm in London. Uh, they have taken years building up uh, long-standing relationships with their clients based on understanding, trust and a commitment to excellence. You can find out more at wigmore hyphen associates.co.uk or give them a call on 0207 224 Wigmore Associates. Who are very kindly, of course, sponsoring this podcast and making it possible. Mm. But now let's talk to someone who knows about standards in public life and where they should be. It's Dr. Catherine Haddon, who's Programme Director at the Institute for Government. So, Catherine, I mean, do you think that we have too high a standard that we set for, for our politicians? I mean, should we accept that they are human like the rest of us? Uh, I think it's entirely possible to um, accept that they're human and also have high standards about them. They are in public office. Um, you know, we elect them. Uh, governments has great powers and therefore you need to make sure that that is being exerted in the right ways. So it is possible to get a balance between that. There have been difficulties with uh, the ministerial code and ethics and standards and so forth, where, you know, perhaps it's it's tipping a bit too far in, in an, another direction. But uh, the last few years have just shown how important this all is. Well, so let, let, let's get into the code mm -hmm. of conduct, if we can, because, I mean, you mentioned it there and it has been as very much in the news. What is it? What does it say? And, and how is it run? Yeah, I think look, it's important to understand the historical origins of this. It was originally sent out by every prime minister, um, certainly for the last sort of 40, 50 years, as uh, something which is about sort of procedures and the expectations that a prime minister had of their minister. So it was very much the sort of the prime minister's own kind of expected code of conduct for, for ministers. Um, and as such, it's now a sort of a slightly weird document because it includes a lot of, of what we've been talking about in recent months about, you know, guide on, on how ministers should behave and things that are wrong. Um, some of which is obviously covered by the law or covered by other codes of conduct, including how civil servants operate. But it's also got a mix of uh, processes and how government operates and how they do collective responsibility, how they'll come to a decision and, and sort of the processes of government as well. And that can make it a bit of a, a tricky document uh, as a guide for expected behaviour. So and this is over and above, you know, the, the law. I mean, isn't isn't the law enough? Couldn't we just say, look, if you've broken the law, then you should be, uh, you know, we should follow the process for, for anybody who's, who's broken the law. And if, if you haven't broken the law, should we worry too much about it? Well, the law supersedes all of this. So anything um, that you might do in terms of misusing government um, uh, resources, um, you know, your access to information or, or whatever to, that then breaks the law will supersede anything that, that is covered by the ministerial code. So that is a an even a greater standard and, um, you know, has, has greater powers, obviously, and should be a greater deterrent. 
Um, but the ministerial code it offers an op- a different kind of set of, of um, guides to. to well, just give it, give us a sense of that. So, for example, if if someone does something that is unethical, I suppose, perhaps rather than illegal, yeah. or I mean, well, let's take let's take a real life example. Yeah. Say you prorogued Parliament, for example, mm-hmm. and told the Queen that you prorogued <laughs> Parliament. You know, uh, when it really you just wanted to stop the vote to try and get Brexit through. Is that? Unethical? Is that uh, a breach of ministerial code? Is it unlawful? Where does that sit? Um, it, it might be considered unethical, but probably in a way that then the public would be the final arbiters of, of what has happened. Obviously, that was an unusual case because it ended up going to court anyway, um, which you know is pretty much unheard of in, in terms of things there which are to do with the, the constitution. So that was really about the advice that a prime minister gives to the palace about, in that case, proroguing parliament. And, and what the Supreme Court found was that advice uh, should not have occurred, uh, was unlawful, and therefore uh, the prorogation was, as it were, null and void. Uh, yeah. So that was a slightly different case. It's constitutional propriety rather than yeah. ethics per se. Right. But exactly, as a result yeah. of that, the prime minister stayed the prime minister. I mean, there weren't any consequences. To no, that. indeed. I mean, and the other example that you know has has flowed from Boris Johnson was uh, accusations of him misleading Parliament. And again, that's something that is very explicitly set out in the code. Um, that you should not do, and you know, it's, it's sort of, sort of, you know, the hard hardest penalties will apply there. That uh, a prime minister would normally ask for the resignation of a minister who does that, and that that really goes back to the Profumo scandal, where he outright um, denied having an affair with Christine Keeler. Th- and this then, was a conservative minister in the early sixties. That's right. Yeah, uh, having an mini- affair with, ha- with minister a woman for war, so it yeah. was quite significant because and she was supposedly seeing a Russian spy yes. as well. Yeah. It was, yeah. Yeah. yeah, I mean, yeah. they were the good old days, weren't they? When well, it, it was a proper you know, yeah. government scandal. Was a proper scandal. But, but Catherine, then. the thing you said there, you know, it, it, it's the Prime Minister's document, mm. and the Prime Minister. Uh, has these expectations of the minister, uh, the ministers who are in the cabinet or, or whom he appoints, and if they break it, he has the option to dismiss them on that basis. But the point being, it's the prime minister's code, so the prime minister presumably is the final arbiter, but also therefore not not bound by it. Well, I mean, obviously, a prime minister should be bound by the same rules that apply to all other ministers. The problem there is as it were, the who watches the watchers, who is then the guardian that oversees this. Uh, and in the case of, of Boris Johnson, obviously, Parliament and the Privileges Committee has been able to take over this because if it is they who are being misled, they also have their own um, sort of codes and conventions about behaviour. So it's on that basis that they're able to take action. And if there was another case where a prime minister did something that it, you know, later came to light, had rev- had. Uh, potentially breach the ministerial code. Again, it's parliament can take action, but only if you've got a majority there. So yes, there is a default that means that a prime minister can in theory hide behind it and say, well, you know, I, I don't think that I did and I think it's all fine and it's mine anyway, so you can't do anything. But again, ultimately, that's what we have the media for. That's why we have public accountability, because then it allows the public to be able to make their minds up about uh, said prime minister or about a political party or a government. But as long that, as they get to hear about that, it, of course. Yeah, that's, yeah. that's the problem, though, isn't it, Catherine? Because in the, end, the media, as we know, um, much of it is owned by particular interest groups. There's also, of course, social media, you know, the the, 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 the 
the, the court of public opinion then, if that is the arbiter, is a pretty unreliable, unjust one, one might say. Uh, I think you could say that it um, can be haphazard, but actually if you look at the wealth of material that now gets out into the public domain, journalists do a very good job um, of seeking out stories. This isn't that you know they're just sitting there waiting for a civil servant to leak them something. They do an awful lot of chasing down stories, of trying to work out that's what's gone on. Where it is worrying, if you look at all the recent ministerial code inquiries, all of them have come about because, first of all, a, a journalist broke the story. So we do very much rely still on journalists to be able to get this out. And I think it is a critique of, of government and of the system that we haven't had um, any inquiries where the government have held its hand up and say, you know, we initiated inquiry. This didn't get out in public, but we started it because, you know, this this looks like dodgy behaviour and, and we need it investigated. So that's where I think it does become a bit bit worrying. But to go back to one of your earlier questions, um, it is important that the prime minister has some leeway over when he does and doesn't ask for a, a resignation because some breaches do end up being a little bit minor. If it's just that, you know, you went on a visit that perhaps you shouldn't have done, met with some people um, that you shouldn't have done, and it was because of ignorance. I mean, you could argue should that person be a prime minister, uh, be a minister, but but ultimately it is the prime minister's judgment. Does he have confidence in them? Does he want them in their cabinet? And similarly, investigations sometimes aren't going to reveal all the details. Do you remember when Gavin Williamson um, left government, was sacked effectively because uh, there was this breach uh, where details about a conversation about Huawei were leaked. And uh, this was considered a breach of national security. There was a massive leak inquiry. As I understand it, they never had you know exact proof of what went on. But Theresa May, the then Prime Minister, felt she had enough confidence um, in the information to believe that Gavin Williamson may have been behind it or at least was culpable um, and so uh, kicked him out. And that's why the confidence of Prime Minister is still important. In truth, she didn't like him much, and in the end, he got a knighthood, so well, it didn't go too badly. But it, but it is a lot of it is politicking, is it? Even if it's on the same side, yeah. but very often, you know, between both sides of Parliament, a lot of it becomes politicking. So rather than focusing on, what you know, ethics? just things like what would be good for the country, you know, yeah. old-fashioned yeah. things like that, they're too busy having a dig at each other, and and they can use this as a as a tool to say, well, yeah, okay, absolutely. you've acted improperly. But I mean, politics goes both way. You look at the recent Sweller Braverman case. I mean, the reality is what she may have done, which was ask whether or not, and she may even have put pressure on civil servants to ask them, could they uh, get this this speeding course arranged for her as a private one-to-one? -one. And that looks to, to the rest of us as if like, oh, that shouldn't have happened. But it's not, but it's the, not a big deal. It's not the no, it's, most egregious breach. Yeah. And the reality yeah. is if it had been another person, another time, you probably would have said, slap on the wrist, apologize, and let's move on. What is a the problem there is, is one, obviously, Suella Braverman, uh, politics and you know concerns people have over there but then she should be judged uh, you know on on her accountability about being a minister about uh, how well the home office is going and that should be mm. the biggest thing that we're worrying about but the other part of that which perhaps is a bit more of a concerning um breach is there was a uh, one of her special advisors seems to have briefed journalists and denied the story and that is against the special advisor code so if they do that that's a problem but if they did it under her orders that is also a massive problem so so there's a lot of codes out there by the yeah. sound of you've got the special advisor code you've got the ministerial code of conduct yeah are these 
drawn up by civil servants? Are they... You said it comes initially from the Prime Minister. Does he sit down with a clean sheet of paper and start roughing out some ideas? Or is there are there certain things that absolutely everyone agrees are part of this code of conduct? There are certain things that have uh, become sort of uh, agreed over time that should be part of it. So they go back, the first published um, version, which was then called Questions of Procedure for Ministers, was published in the early 1990s. And Tony Blair changed the title to Ministerial Code. And there's been a lot of continuity since then. The the wording on um, misleading parliament has stayed the same. There's been slight changes. So after a lot of the Me Too stuff in parliament came out, uh, the language around harassment and bullying was um, sort of beefed up quite a lot. So there's a lot more preamble there. So again, standards have changed, but often to become harder. And they've revised it at other times when particular cases have come to light and they've had to sort of make sure that they're more explicit that this is not done because there's, there's always going to be things that fall between the cracks of what's actually written down. Yeah, and that's the point, isn't it? I mean, if it's just incidental stuff, like, for example, Boris Johnson failing to register that he's earning some income from his Daily Telegraph column, for example. Stuff like that is just, uh, you could say, well, okay, I, I, I stuffed up. I should have done it. I didn't do it. And just issue an on-the-spot fine. I mean, could you just say, well, okay, let's have a let's have a, a system of, uh, if you declare, you know, ultimately you declare it, you seem to have done the wrong thing, you pay the fine, we move on. At least then. I mean, they're not necessarily... So a sort of separate wealthy. system of justice almost for yeah. these things. Yeah, and, and that has changed recently. So last year, um, they made a amendment- to it to imply that there could be different um, punishments effectively for it. And as I say, we think that's a good idea because in some cases, an apology um, is going to be, you know, the best way through it. Um, And that might include obviously apologising to the House of Commons, because again, if it's something like, for example, I mean, way back when um, I think Jackie Smith um, misled Parliament, uh, but that was because she had the wrong information um, that was given she, to she her. She was Home Secretary and Labour Secretary to the time, and she had the wrong information given to her by the department. So it's completely sort of unknowing on her part. But she resigned um, because at the time, you know, that was considered the done thing. I think today we'd probably say, look, just an apology is sufficient um, and, and let's move on. If it's something that you've done willfully to hamper Parliament, um, that's a different story from you accidentally misled them. But who who makes the call on that then? I mean, it, if it's if you are misleading Parliament, I mean, if you're saying it's really the Prime Minister's job and he's part and parcel of, or she is part and parcel of, of that misleading of, the, of Parliament. Well, it's misleading. It's Parliament itself that takes it on, isn't it, through yeah. the Privileges Committee, I suppose. It is now. But again, these things have all sort of evolved over time at at previous occasions a lot of ministers ended up sort of you know going off their own back like that like the the jackie smith example um whereas now i think we are more expecting of a more formal investigation um some kind of advice from the advisor on ministerial interests and then the prime minister but that's on the job of being a minister that's on whether they should stay as being a minister parliament has its own rules its own ability to investigate through the privileges committee Again, this is a relatively recent development, um, but it's doing so as 
on behalf of them being ministers coming and MPs coming to account to Parliament. So it gets to punish them as MPs and can sanction them by chucking them out of the House for any number of days. Isn't there a danger that Parliament just spends so many hours where MPs are busy investigating each other? You know, they don't do what they're supposed to. Yeah, exactly. We don't get anything done. Uh, There's always a danger with all of this. But I think some are so serious that they do need proper investigation. With the Privileges Committee, to be honest, it is one of these ones where you need justice to be seen to be done. Um, You know, there'll be a lot of people out there who have views on um, Boris Johnson and what he's done, and some will want it to go the whole hog where he's given more than 10 days suspension and therefore um, it it triggers a recall petition and potentially a by-election in his own constituency. But for others, they probably just want to move on. However, it's important that Parliament is seen to be doing this because it's its way of saying, look, this really matters to us. So it's a deterrent for future ministers. That's not how people see it, though. I mean, the number of times you hear a prime minister or a senior politician saying, well, we have to follow due process. And, you know, you can see collectively the nation's eyes all rolling in the back of their head as they go, "Okay, this is just another delaying tactic. Yeah. And in some cases it is. I mean, the the sort of announce you're going to do a leak inquiry is a good way of kicking into the long grass. Kicking into the long grass. But in other cases, Sue Gray, I think, was the well, uh, exactly. But we're waiting for Sue Gray. There was no point. uh, There was no reason why Boris Johnson couldn't account for himself. It was not a legal process where he was under some kind of you know legal restrictions that he couldn't answer questions until Sue Gray was done. So, no, there he he clearly could have answered those Kath- questions earlier. Kath- the one thing that really interests me in this is how we have changed in this, because we're talking about it now, you know, it's huge issues. Many people feel that perhaps, certainly since Boris Johnson arrived in Downing Street, standards perhaps of public behaviour have slipped amongst politicians or have our expectations increased? Not sure which way, but then it, we went, we could go back away. I mean, you went back a little bit to the, the early 60s. One could go right back, I suppose, to the uh, early 1920s, allegations of, of Lloyd George handing out peerages for money. I mean, this has been with us a long time. Do you think attitudes have changed or do we actually have less honest politicians now than we used to? Uh, I think attitudes have changed. But I mean, if you want to go back, Robert Walpole, who is um, considered our first prime minister, whose name is quite difficult to pronounce. Sort of early 18th century. Early 18th century. Yes. Um, he and was prime minister for a long time, but he was believed to be incredibly corrupt, you know, handing out favours to all of his mates and possibly squirrelling away money um, through his sort of access uh, as prime minister. So, you know, it's always been with us. You look around the world, um, different levels of corruption are, are out there whenever you've got uh, ministers in powerful positions. Where we end up is is slightly more blurred grey areas, you know, whether the PPE contracts, whether they were given to people who knew other people, um, is that corruption or is that just bad government. Um, again, these come down to sort of judgments. I do think our our views have changed, Have uh, our expectations have increased. We do expect our policy or we would like our politicians to be, um, you know, uh, clearly incorruptible. Um, they're in office. But at the same time, I think expectations of politicians are pretty low. So that, you know, the troubling bit during the Boris Johnson years was that a lot of it, you know, was at risk of being just Sort of swept under the carpet of oh well that's what yeah. he's like and I th- yeah people shrugged and say that's Boris exactly. in, in corporate life you sort of accept that don't you sometimes you have you know the leader of a company who 
uh, is a little bit ruthless, perhaps might break the rules along the way. People put up with that if they see it being effective for the company. And if they go too far, I guess they've got a board that can sack him. But the board probably is pretty lenient so long as they see. But that's the company changed too. Comp- I mean, corporate uh, mm. behavior is much more overseen now. Yeah. And yeah. I mean, if you take another example, um, the CBI, the Confederation of British Industries lately, uh, views about uh, transgressions in terms of sexual harassment, um, those have very much changed. And, uh, you know, in my view, quite rightly. Um, and so behaviour that, yes, in the past, people would have said, oh, he's just like that. Oh, watch out for him. Don't have your back to him or something like that. That's just not acceptable anymore. And I think companies are under huge pressure there to not only act swiftly if it is revealed, if there are um you know, allegations or complaints are made, but also to make sure that their companies don't foster a culture in which, you know, that kind of behaviour is encouraged. So, yes, views have changed. Donald Trump, of course, you know, had the technique of uh, saying, of doing so much wrong, you wouldn't know where to start. And I think Boris Johnson sort of like followed that playbook as well uh, in that, you know, if there's so many allegations or potential allegations, uh, you, you just can't cover them all. And then you, because of that, you will have people saying, well, you know, but he's he was doing a good job. But even now, even all the, the allegations mm-hmm. against Boris, there's still a slug of the population of Tory voters who, who want him back because they saw him as being effective and not boring. Uh, and that's the danger, isn't it? You know, do you, do we well, do we the, end the, up with... with, with yeah, with, we don't with, want bland with, people necessarily. And this actually, Catherine, I was going to mention about the bullying thing, which is mm. sort of what brought down Dominic Raab. Again, with the parallel with corporate culture, people often say, oh, you know, so-and-so is actually very hard to work for, you know, doesn't suffer fools gladly, some phrase like that. And it might be considered bullying, but perhaps they're very effective in what they do. Uh, I mean, again, when it comes to bullying, there is a line. There is a line between um, being just a hard taskmaster, um, you know, being stressed and perhaps taking it out on people and then apologising afterwards and then sustained behaviour. And with Dominic Raab, uh, you know, the situation was about how it was tackled. Uh, We've never really had the sort of full investigation to look into well, how were the complaints handled? Did he accept when he was told to stop behaving like that and did stop behaving like that? And again, I think views have changed. I know plenty of people who talk about um, civil servants who will talk about the past ministers that they worked with who were incredibly difficult and treated you badly and shouted at you and all sorts. And yet the expectation around it has changed. People won't put up with that anymore. And again, probably quite rightly, because the reality is we've we've again got a lot of research that suggests that, you know, poor atmosphere in the workplace doesn't lead to more effective teams. So mm. yeah, people said to me, well Churchill would certainly have been uh, uh, had up for bullying had Well had, again, had... I mean there there is a there is a letter from his wife to him early on in his premiership in the war saying, look, I'm hearing these stories about you. This isn't you. You know, you have always argued to me that you won't get the best out of people if you're scaring them into submission you need to sort of change um one assumes that he he heard that and listened to it so even then even with churchill that line was there and was understood just wait till the book that i'm writing about working with roger wait till that one comes out (laughs) um, so you mentioned the ppe before uh and uh and how you know how important that was at the time but it seems to have drifted a bit and that's my concern there's so much going on 
a lot of this seems important at the time, but then gets overtaken by events, are often things which are uh, less important. But that goes to the heart of the effectiveness thing, because what was... In but a it's way, just, is the system working, I guess, is, is my the question. System, but we, we have a general feeling we didn't come out too badly from COVID, or at least that some have that feeling, and therefore the details, which is what you're talking about, mm. maybe can be, oh, well, yes, it wasn't done ethically necessarily, but we got there. I mean, Kathy, is that really a problem? Because, I mean, people there's real, over that? because I mean, there are real issues, still big question marks, aren't there, about how that money moved around and uh, and who the beneficiaries were. I feel as though it's not fully resolved. No, but we the, have got the COVID inquiry to come, so we'll be able to look into uh, some of, of those cases, I'm sure. I mean, the thing to well, remember that... How many years later? How many years later? Obviously, many years but, later, but a lot of the people mm. will have moved on anyway. Look, the way you've got to think about all of these things is kind of as course correction. Um, with but the Boris Johnson experience, you know, government has effectively course corrected that a lot of, of of things that perhaps we were talking about of like, oh, is this a slippery slope and we're going to end up in a, in a in a government where ethics and standards just don't matter? You can just brazen your way out of it. No, we haven't ended up there. You know, we've ended up course correcting and saying no, this stuff does actually matter. And he fell as a prime minister in part because of that. And similarly with the COVID PPE contracts, the defence is it was a very busy time. They were trying to um, do as much as possible. A lot of money got thrown around. There were some bad cases, but in other cases, the system trying to do things quickly worked. That's the defence. Um, and again, you know, the public will make their own minds up about that. They will do so at the ballot box, if nothing else. Um, but in in government terms, that's not how you do contracting. There are strict rules about it. They were. Um, lessened during the COVID pandemic because of the circumstances. But civil servants involved in those kind of commercial skills will be very well aware of those and, and will be quite cautious about making sure that from their end, that doesn't happen. And I think ministers too are probably back to being very cautious about making sure well, they can't end up being accused of corruption. Let, 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 let's talk about the thing we spoke about right at the beginning, which is is it reasonable to expect people to be held to certain standards? In the end, what we need, the best sort of politicians, are good managers, people who can come up with ideas uh, and and get them onto the statute book if that's what they need or organise a ministry or whatever it is. That's what they need to do. Should we actually really care about anything else? And, and, well, and do we all meet the standard ourselves, I guess? Is the, is the yeah, is it hypocrisy? Well, you know, of course, as we said, you know, they are human and we should have a bit of sympathy in, in terms of the explanations then given, if they're given in good faith and the, the, the explanation turns out to be the reality. But all of this stuff matters. It doesn't just matter as a sort of philosophical, esoteric ideal. It is because it leads to better government. You know, PPE contracts, it isn't just a case of, oh, were you giving favours to your mates? It's a bad use of public money if you're not getting effective um, you know, resources for the money that you're spending. That's why we have bureaucracy in place to make sure that we're spending money well. It doesn't always work, um, but the solution is probably not going to be, I'll just let them get on with it. And similarly, ethics and standards, it matters because it leads to better government. The more transparent you are, the more that you are able to account for what you did in a way that meets these standards, the more likely you are that you're being affected. Uh, can I challenge that? Because I think, I mean, some people might say, well, hang on, if people are constantly thinking, how will this look if it appears in the Times tomorrow or Private Eye next week, they might be paralysed in their action in a way that isn't helpful to government. 
Surely. Well, so that's a slightly different question, which comes down to the risk aversion in government. And there, I think you are right. But it's less to do with ethics and standards and more to do with how am I going to be hit on this in in policy terms later? So, you know, if I I make a particular decision um, on a policy and it turns out not to be effective or, you know, it's found out that we're putting all this money into this pilot here or something like that. Uh, yes, that can be crippling to decision making. You do need politicians and civil servants in the end to take risks because you need to try and solve some very thorny problems. So, yeah, it's all part and parcel of it. We do need a better understanding of government so that we don't have this culture where you know people are quite averse to taking risks because or, or are making sure that the decision goes all the way up to the top because nobody wants to sort of carry the can for it because that does slow down mm. the wheels of government. And then party contributions that are made from uh, people or organisations that then see some benefit from it. I mean, that is very difficult to prove, isn't it? Yes, they gave us money. Uh, we do know well, them. and we, yeah, we, we Because we, we don't publicly fund parties, so they have to get money from someone. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Your only solution there is a much bigger increase in the public money that, that goes to political parties. So they don't have to take donations at all. Um, as long as you've got political donations, you're always going to be at risk of those kind of accusations. And is that the case anywhere in the world yeah. where you can't actually? Yeah, mm. I think there. So certainly in Europe, there's a much greater proportion of of public funding that goes to political parties. Um, we're quite limited in how we do it. Obviously, the US goes in the opposite direction with massive amounts of. Um, private sector cash going into to re-elections and election campaigns and and all sorts and and you see the effects there. Lots of talk of pork barrel politics, all this kind of stuff. So, you know, but but again, the public um, appetite for greater public money going to politicians probably isn't there. So we are stuck in the world. But that's part of the problem, in. yeah, isn't it? Because because our image of politicians. You went onto the street now and asked people what do they think of politicians. I mean, they come pretty low on the scale of public regard. They're in it for their own ends. Yes, would be well, what it's almost would traditional to think they're corrupt, that they are uh, in it for what they can get, that they are power mad, whatever it is. So. That's got to change, hasn't it? Because otherwise you're not going to get people going into politics if they have a terrible reputation to start with. They're not paid that much and they're held to these incredibly exacting standards. No, and indeed that is, you know, it is a big problem in our politics at the moment. You've got to have a very thick skin. And it's not just all of those things. It's also the amount of abuse that you can open yourself up to, especially now on social media, especially if you're a female politician. Um, I mean, some of it, you know, they brought upon themselves. You remember the expenses scandal in 2008 where MPs' expenses were revealed for the first time with some, you know, ludicrous... Um, duck houses, duck, I think. Well, it was a duck house. Um, but it was also a lot of people who were, um, you know, swapping what was their primary residence so that they could get their mortgage paid. Flipping, I Flipping, think, wasn't it? Yeah. <laughs> All sorts of things. Yeah. But how does that... Take, taking that as an example, how does that happen? So if that was a company and you put in an expense claim... That it was purely, obviously, clearly mm. ridiculous. Mm. That would get knocked on the head before you got paid any money. Yeah, the, the reason is because Parliament for many years has, has basically been self-regulating. Um, and the idea there is nothing can be above Parliament. Um, you know, as an institution, as the core of our constitution, democratically elected MPs should be, you know, ultimate, um, ultimately responsible only unto themselves. And so because it was self-regulating, 
Um, a lot of stuff was basically done very ad hoc um, in ways that, you know, don't compare. So that's got to change then, hasn't it? Because I mean, we're showing well, that. Well, that already has changed. So now you have uh, independent bodies in parliament who assess um, the expenses that are going in, who make sure that their reporting requirements are adhered to. Um, so, you know, and similarly, and in terms of bullying claims, again, they've handed it over to an independent body to make sure um, that those are able to be assessed by somebody who is not politicians. Do, do you because- think this will all work? Do you think we will end up with a better attitude towards politicians with with all these things that are in place now whether it's ministerial codes of conduct or parliamentary oversight or ipso looking at expenses is that actually going to work or is it going to just occupy more of the pages in the newspaper rather than government policy i think i mean i'm a bit of a cynic when it comes to some of this i think you're always as long as you've got you know, human beings, you're always going to end up clicking more on the negative stories than on the positive stories. So as long as people are paying attention to these stories, are clicking on the links, are reading newspapers and so forth, of course, that's what the journalists are going to want to chase down. um, And they're going to have the the greatest noise. I think what we fail to do as a country is to really look at the other side of it. Actually, most politicians do go into this job because of public service. They do want to make a contribution. Um, And that doesn't really come out in the discourse around politicians. And similarly, you know, you think about all of the TV programs and films, it's always about some drama involving politicians. We don't have anything that looks at the sort of positive side of what they're doing. So So isn't there a danger for those people, though? I mean, if they feel like they've got to tread such a fine line or they'll get caught for, for something that, you know, may be entirely innocent. Uh, you're going to have those people who are getting into politics for all the right reasons going, well, it just seems too difficult, well, really. Uh, uh, I mean, I, I think it's troubling that, you know, a lot of people will end up turned off by it. But at the same time, we do still have lots more politicians, um, you know, getting into uh, into it. There's going to be a huge changeover this time round, but there will be more and more people standing. I think it's you know, it's heartwarming, really, to to think that despite all of this, there are still a lot of people who have the optimism bias that think that I can make a difference. I can go into politics and change this. Um, and, and as long as that sort of goodwill exists, um, you know, there is hope for the future, I think. Well, that's a good note, I think, on which to end this conversation. Kath, thank you very much indeed. Uh, really interesting to uh, yeah get a sense of, well politicians are they all bad and should they be held to higher standards but well neither phil nor i are in politics and i don't think you are either guys um, <laughs> no, nor will we ever be thank yeah. goodness thanks, thanks so much for talking thanks to us. a lot guys See i guess I, so i guess the one good thing we can say is that you know extramarital affairs which always mm. occupy the pages of newspapers yeah, you know, we, with us? well it's just the fact that that perhaps these days is less of a concern you know we, yes. and we're concerned about the money and corruption yeah but sex but not well not sex if in legitimate in inverted because we are um, all human at the end of the day. Yeah, and, most of us. Um, yeah. But no, I mean, yeah, and for example, it was a, when I went in the 90s, lots of politicians were outed. That was a big thing. You know, mm. if they were gay, secretly gay, this was a huge uh, issue. Uh, and, and, you know, made life incredibly difficult for a lot of politicians, I suspect. So there are ways in which that has changed. But, of course, money has been at the root of a lot of these problems, as we were saying during mm. the discussion. And, well, is Britain is UK PLC a place that a lot of money is going to come into in the near future? Have we been shooting ourselves in the foot, basically, is the question, isn't it? You know, was Brexit such a bad idea? I mean, 
I mean, I think the argument still stands that, you know, when we decided we were going to detach ourselves from no. the European Union, uh, we stopped being the place where you could base yourself, an English-speaking country, where you could export easily to the rest of Europe. Yeah. And, then, and that means a lot of investors would have looked at us uh, as, as a less appealing place to put them Plus money. also certain uh, politicians, it has to be said, handling of the economy in uh, just mm. very recent times didn't exactly lead to a lot of confidence yeah. uh, from external investors. So, And uh, we are one of the slowest growing countries in, yeah. the, in the G7 now, or the yeah. G20. Even. Yeah, yeah, so, yeah. Um, we may escape a recession, we don't know. The mm. uh, IMF seems to think so. But I, 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 the point, I suppose, is, is it... Is Britain a place that people now want to invest in? Is, is it a, a place that people want to put their money and hope good things will come from it? And if it's not, what can we do to change their mind? Do we go down the low tax road? Do we become, you know, Singapore on Thames? Not very uh, likely. Uh, let's hope not. Mm. Uh, but there's all the other things that governments are trying, like, for example, you know, having free ports. Will these ideas work? You know, will they encourage people to come in to add value and export yeah. with, the, with the low tax is regime? is confidence, really, in mm. our economic future? That's going to be our subject for the next edition of The Why Curve, brought to you by Wigmore Associates. We'll see you next week. Thanks Bye. for listening. The Why Curve.